I love that song. The song is called Bigger Than Me. And this is Tracy Harrell. And we're in part two of the kickoff for a movement that's also called Bigger Than Me. This is the Bigger Than Me success series, achieving racial equity and inclusion in business, education, wealth, and health. We're at a critical point in history where there really are no other options than driving change. We can't keep talking about the same things. This, this initiative is specifically designed to help each person, no matter where you are on this equity and inclusion journey, no matter where you are when it comes to the idea of racial equity and inclusion, what we're doing is really simple. And, and I'm just gonna break down the, the three things that we're doing. First of all, this first session was focused on establishing a clear case for change. Right? We look at what's happening in the streets of America and we 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 you know most of us were were enraged, right, by you know, watching the shenanigans that has occurred, that continue to occur. And, and what this is about is just a point of clarification that what you see happening in the streets of America is also happening in corporate America. It's happening in every business, in most systems that exist. So when we talk about achieving racial equity and inclusion in business, education, wealth, and health, these are all systems. And I've brought together amazing experts, uh, change agents, leaders in our community who are excited about moving this initiative forward about really driving change. And we invite each of you. So we had a live event on 7-7. This is a six part series, which includes events on 7-7-8-8-9-9-10-10-11-11 and 12-12. So every month, keeping the dates very simple of 2020, right? So the idea is each person is invited to these free events. This is a national change initiative. I'm also using my own show, this show called Bigger Than Me, to also extend the conversation, to continue to allow for a deeper conversation. The other thing we say we're doing is we're approaching a systems approach with adaptive leadership, positive psychology, and it's really about thinking through this concept of self directed learning, which means you're going to get a lot of information. And we're all at different places in our hearts and our minds as it relates to this concept of racial equity and inclusion. Self-directed learning is really about you deciding what are you going to do with the information that you receive. Information without activation cannot lead to a transformation. I heard that as a part of, I'm part of a series of amazing sessions and Debrina Jackson Gandy um, and Delana Elliott just said that in a session I was in right before today and I just wanted to give them credit and bring those words forward. Information with, cannot lead to transformation without activation. I love that, <laughs> right? So this Bigger Than Me movement really is about activation. And so no matter where you are, we're gonna be recording all of these sessions we're going to have, there's a number of interviews that I still haven't posted on my website or on YouTube. My website is, it's all bigger than me.com. So we're going to continue to build resources for you. So no excuses around what to do. So we're going to make sure that the, the process that we're moving on is available for everyone. 
absolutely the train has already left the station and there's a space for you on the train. So just jump on board, just jump in. The concept of adaptive leadership is about being comfortable being uncomfortable. So there are some known solutions, but there also are solutions that we're gonna co-create together. It's about listening and hearing voices. We had some beautiful um, presentations by Brene Brown, who I love, 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 love. And she talks about sharing perspectives. So um, you have the, the video for perspectives we're gonna play for, um, from Brene Brown. And the reason we're gonna share Brene Brown again is because I love her. She talked about stories and how stories that we own can't own us. We get to write the ending. So this is about helping each of you to own this story of achieving racial equity and inclusion in business, education, wealth, and health. And so where we left off in the last presentation was we asked each of these panelists, what does success look like? If this is a bigger than me success series, it's important for us to find out what success looks like. And so the reason we're going to bring up this video from Brene Brown before we talk more about success is when she talks about perspective, what she's saying is we all need to hear the voices of others. So can you play, share with us what Brene Brown says about perspectives? Picture a lens that you look through the world through, or you used to look through the world. Um, and we look through lenses of age, ethnicity, race, ability, and that's how we see the world. And then we slide in a lot of other lenses like insight, personal experience, history, family stories, and we all see the world through this unique lens. The whiter, more Judeo-Christian, straighter, middle-class, educated we are, the more likely it is that we were told that how we see the world is actually the world and how other people see the world is another unreal version of the of the world that our our view is the world the thing that's hard and the thing i think we make a mistake even in my field in social work we tell people that empathy is putting down that lens and picking up the lens of another person i'm going to pick up the lens of an asian american student who's first generation immigrant who is we can't put down the lens. The lens is soldered to our face. That's how we see the world. So how, if empathy requires perspective taking, how do we take the perspective of other people if the lens that we see the world through is soldered to us? The answer is you believe people's stories, you believe people's experiences as they tell them to you. You believe when people tell their story and say, this is my experience of what it was like to work there. This is my experience of what it was like to be a student there. This was my experience of what it was like to be called that. That you don't run that through your lens. You understand that the world that they see through their lens is as real and honest and truthful as the world that we see through our lens. And I think perspective taking, you know, there's four skills that ladder up to empathy. Non-judgment, perspective taking, recognizing emotion, and communicating back emotion. If you can't perspective take, we can't practice empathy. Because the minute we say, oh, that's a terrible story, but that's not how I see it. It's okay to have an opinion, but you can't dismiss what people experience and talk about as truth. Oh, boy, do I love that. I love, I love Brene Brown. And, and, and what we've asked each person to do is to talk about 
you know, their areas of expertise. When you look at this flyer up, up close, it's on all of our websites. Um, each person brings a level of expertise. And we've asked them to talk about not only what does success look like, but we also asked them to talk about uh, actions. And so our next session, which is scheduled for 8-8, we're gonna be very specifically focused on actions. This session was focused on establishing a clear case for change, which means understanding what does success look like? What are some of the challenges? And this concept of systems change. So we have individuals who are gonna talk more about this as a systemic problem. So first we're gonna continue the conversation where I asked our amazing panelists uh, to introduce themselves and then to tell us what does success look like? So we're gonna continue that conversation with one of my favorite people, new best buds, Michael Vershow from the University of Washington. have a slightly different expertise. I have you here from an education perspective, but also you you have an expertise in wealth as well as business. What does success look like to you? I mean, with the, my, the state of my 401k, I don't have enough expertise in wealth, um, but we'll save that that for later. Um, but um, so I'm Michael Vershaw. I'm the director of the Consulting and Business Development Center at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. So our center's mission is to accelerate student careers and to grow businesses uh, owned by people of color. And then I also run the a National Ascend Network, which is an ecosystem uh, ecosystem approach um, running in 13 cities to support the growth of businesses owned by people of color. Um, so for me, the definitions of, of success are when African Americans and Latinos have the same median family net worth as white families do, right? Um, blacks in this country make up 13, 14% of the population. When, when, when there are 13 to 14% of African-Americans who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, that's success, right? Um, you know, when, when we see, when blacks graduate high school and college at the same rate as whites do, that's success. Um, so for me, so for me, it, it, but it, bottom line, right? It comes down to, comes down to wealth, right? At this point, African Americans have family net worth at the median of about seven cents on the dollar of whites, and when when, it be, when, when we reach parity, then that's success. Mm, I love it. I love it. Sophia Bansfield, how are you? Introduce yourself and tell us what does success mean to you. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, thank you, Tracy, for having me. Uh, my name is Sophia Bansfield. I'm former president of the University of Washington Black Student Union, um, recent graduate. Um, to me, I believe that success is um, the opportunity to realize your full potential through um, access to education, um, job opportunities, professional mentorship, um, and things like that. I think um, when we had the opportunity to kind of explore our our skills, our knowledge, and things like that, that's when we um, can really realize our potential and, and success. Mm, don't you love that? So we also had, we've, we've talked about success with a number of individuals. And what I love about this success conversation, which we're gonna to continue to have. So as, as I mentioned before, part of this initiative is, is doing several things. It's a six session series, so one each month. And there's also these weekly opportunities for engagement. We're also offering a series of uh, cohort opportunities. There will be a book written at the end of this process. So in a couple of months, we're gonna start an actual writing nest 
a writing cohort that will publish a book at the end of December. It's so exciting. We're partnering with the Ignite series, J.B. Owen. It's absolutely going to be amazing. So what I love about this is as we talk more about success and moving this concept of success forward, part of what this initiative is, is we're going to provide you with the 411 and the 911. Now, you have to be a certain age to understand what that means. <laughs> the 411 is a number you used to have to call before the internet for information. So we're going to provide you with the information, but also the activation. What do you need to, to, to drive change in this moment? This is, an, this is urgent. Urgent action is needed. Now is the time for us to move forward. So are we ready to play the success video, the next phase? Um, and again, let me clarify also um, what we're doing with this initiative is transforming accountability measures. We are also achieving immediate and long-term change. So immediate change, meaning when you hear some of these voices and you hear about the challenges and some of the experiences, these are things that if you're open, if your mind is open and your heart is open, there's no way you're not going to be changed. So we're gonna get started with Again, this is another one of my favorite people. So Don Mason is actually part of this initiative and her daughter, Anissa Mason, was the first person who um, you're gonna hear from right now who talks about what does success look like? Success is not a, um, a financial figure. Success is representation. It's seeing yourself in all levels from the bottom to the top. There shouldn't be a threshold that you get to and then it just stops. So to me, success is being able to see that throughout, no matter what the um, business is. It would give me the opportunity to have the same uh, assessments that's given across the board with the same level of understanding and consideration. It would look, uh, it would look like the, uh, having the opportunity to, to share my concerns and, and uh, having, having an input and know that I've been being and know that I've been heard uh, to include my um, my information, include my concerns, include uh, the significance of whatever the challenges are that I bring to the table, and to be considered with the uh, same level of, of of significance that anybody else would bring. Success to me is freedom. You know, success to me is financial freedom. It's the freedom to 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 choose. It's a it's it's sleep at night, not having to worry about you know rent, not having to worry about food. It's also being able to give back. You know, I'm been in here uh, in Seattle for the past six years by way of Kansas City, Missouri. There's so many things that I want to give back, not only to this community but also take back to my hometown that they have been. Kansas City has been sowing into me. So it's very important to me to be in a place to give back from my knowledge, to give back from the things that I've received. We've got this world of everything that's happening in front of us as we get and go forward in this discussion about where do we see ourselves in this unlived life. Success workplace as well as education is uh, a level of comfortability for all children as well as you know all co-workers you know it shouldn't be one group feels really comfortable in this space while the other is just striving to survive it should be um, across the board and so that is one place that we need to get for everyone to feel successful not just for one group success to me is basically 
being able uh, for one to maximize his or her uh, potential and to find um, whatever gift that one has um, inside and to operate in a manner um, of respect and dignity um, across the board. And um, racial equity and, and justice for me is basically, you know, having equal standards that are applied across the board and, and being um, measured um, by what you're able to do and not by the color of one's skin. So that's pretty much my response in a nutshell. <laughs> Did you love that? So those actually, that was part of some um, pre-event conversations that we had with other supporters. Um, just, that was Dr. David. He actually started the HBCU Times was the last voice that you heard. You saw Dr. Tart also in that video. And again, Anissa Mason, those were, again, just, I love this conversation around what does success look like, but I also think it's important as we talk about this as a, a, a critical time in history. In order for us to drive change, we have to understand that there really are key challenges. So the next person that I'm going to bring up is Lepre George. Uh, Lepre is um, amazing. He's part of the national headquarters for the National Black MBA Association. Uh, we all participated in this think tank that was national. And my term, when I use the term corporate chokehold, that some people love and some people not so much. Um, <laughs> as you could, you heard earlier, Michelle Avon thinks it's perfect. Uh, I thought it was a perfect representation of my personal experience. A corporate chokehold is basically these key challenges that Lepre is going to share with us. And let me know when you have that video ready. Um, Lepre is going to share some key challenges with us. Um, and do you want me to tell you what it is? Okay, uh, so Lepre is gonna, um, he's gonna share key challenges. And this concept of a corporate chokehold, he talks about unconscious bias, similarity bias, this concept of unequal performance standards and a lack of CEO accountability. Those are terms that you're going to hear over and over as a part of this initiative. So I actually trademarked this term corporate chokeholds because sometimes you hear a word and you don't, I don't want it to go anywhere except where we mean for it to be. A corporate chokehold is basically, there's a level of accountability that happens where we're trying to bring visibility, understanding, a voice to the, to the voiceless, power to the powerless, to say when these things are happening, we can call them out as a bigger than me moment. When you're experiencing a corporate chokehold, it's not going to be enough for you to say, oh my God, this is unconscious bias or this is unfair performance standards. So we're going to help you to create a, a, a platform and, and an opportunity to be a part of something great. So there's no reason why all of us would not want to be associated with this concept of, it's actually Road 28. Um, so all of us you know, can be a part of the solution. Um, all of us can be a part of the change and change happens moment by moment. It happens when, again, if you see something, you have to say something. So part of this initiative is going to help you to bring awareness to what to look for, right? You can talk about this concept of unconscious bias and it's, it's relative gen generic. I mean, I, I worked for 25 years in corporate America, over 25 years, eight years at IBM, 
14 years at Disney, my last five at Microsoft. And these are amazing people, let me be clear, amazing people. Yet I experience corporate chokeholds on a daily basis. And these leaders, I swear to you, amazing. I feel like they wanted to do better. Part of me, you know, felt like they didn't know better, right? And so um, for them to think that the, the, the challenge is an individual, that's why part of the, why this is called the Bigger Than Me Success Series. It's because any individual that's in the moment, they're going to need to know whether it's the individual that's experiencing that corporate chokehold or the leader that might be um, in a position, maybe not even aware. That's going to be part of the, the conversation. So we'll move on to the praise going to help us understand key challenges. Yep. So again, thanks, Tracy. Um, so yeah, so um, National Black uh, launched our Black Think series at the 2017 National Conference in Philadelphia. And those that aren't aware, wait, there's something? Oh, okay. For those that aren't aware, the, the Black Think series is our executive roundtable think tank, uh, where issues that are relevant to the Black community are addressed. And the result uh, of this particular uh, event, set of recommendations that were aimed to spark actionable approaches to the most persistent problems that are facing Black professional. Um, so at our conference in September of 2017, there are about five professionals from academic institutions, government agencies, nonprofits, global corporations, and they were all there to discuss and answer the central question around why do Black need to be underrepresented in the executive suite given the proven economic benefits of diversity? Uh, and after a series of discussions, there are four themes that emerged, and I'll go through each of those and provide a little bit of context. And again, I think all these things have already been said, and this think tank that we held uh, now almost four years ago, you know, we, we had just kind of a blank slate discussion. There were no prompts. Uh, the, the, the themes that came out were all organic based on the conversation. Uh, so the first was unconscious bias. Um, as you all know, unconscious bias in the workplace can be detrimental to Blacks um, and an impediment to advancement. So by definition, you know, this topic of discrimination happens on the unconscious level and it's sometimes hard to identify. Um, though unintentional, these issues lead to more systemic discrimination. Um, you know, if a black professional is perceived as incapable of being an effective CEO or executive, he or she uh, will stop receiving the necessary support and training that will enable them to advance to that position. So unconscious bias was one of the themes. The second one uh, was inequitable performance standards. So unconscious bias also leads to an inequitable performance standards for black professionals and when we're held to, a, to different or more stringent expectations than our white counterpart. Um, in addition to being subjected to increased scrutiny, the performance of one black employee can often be generalized to the entire black population. So um, obviously that theme is very uh, prevalent and unfortunate, but again, the second is inequitable performance standards. The third is a lack of strategic support systems. So uh, during the Black Think event, it kind of kept coming back to the lack of strategically aligned support systems among uh, Black professionals as a hindrance to corporate advancement. Um, mentoring was discussed as a key source of support that is either non-existent, low quality, or just not mutually beneficial. Uh, mentorship needs vary across different career stages, obviously, with requiring different strategies. So due to the general lack of support or willingness uh, mentors 
or willing mentors rather for black professionals is often a kind of a make do with what's available kind of a mindset. Um, those that took part in Black Think highlighted the fact that Black professionals need to look beyond simply acquiring and retaining mentors and understanding that th there's more importance around securing a supportive network aligned to current and future needs. So having a coach and a mentor and a sponsor, that combination is really what, 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 what we found to be essential uh, for overall development. And the fourth theme that emerged was CEO accountability measures. Um, I believe Bill hinted at this earlier in uh, a couple of his comments, um, but there was a unanimous consensus at the Black Think event uh, where they believe that the responsibility of promoting and ensuring a diverse workforce starts at the top. Executives also agreed, uh, based on a 2017 study by Deloitte on accountability measures, where 70% of executives consider diversity to be an important priority, uh, and about 40% believe that the CEO was solely responsible for creating a more inclusive environment. So again, four themes emerged around, um, emerged from the discussion around why there is this lack of black uh, visibility at the top. As you all know, there's only four black CEOs currently um, in Fortune 500 companies at the moment. I think we've had many. I think there've been 12 overall ever, um, but there are four currently right now. And again, the four themes that emerged around why that persists and continues to be a problem: unconscious bias inequitable performance standards, lack of support systems, and CEO accountability measures. Thank you. Thank you so much. What I, what I love about this conversation is, or hate, I'm not sure if I love it or hate it. <laughs> I love it because it's so clear. I hate it because when I talk to legacy leaders, they say, Tracy, we've been talking about this same conversation for 40 years. Do you love that? Um, what's exciting, I had to take a breath myself. Ooh, it's a lot. <laughs> so listen, we're going to be providing you with a lot of information in every session. Uh, I'm doing a recap right now of the session we did on 7-7 because as you can see, we had a few Zoom issues. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're recreating and, and making sure that this is something that you could digest very easily. Um, uh, but what I love about this is key challenges. It's important for us to acknowledge and recognize these are things we've been talking about for years. You have legacy leaders who have been talking about these things for years. And, and, and what's what's going to shift this conversation is really around a different discussion around accountability. So when I talked about earlier some of the things that we're doing and I said we are transforming accountability measures, you know, that starts with really us hearing each other. And so listen to what Brene Brown says when she talks about this concept of power. She talks about the three P's, privilege, perspective, and power. The last P is power. We hate the word power. God, we hate the word power. Um, we hate the word power. But let me, let me give you a simple definition of power for Martin Luther King. Power is just the ability to affect change. And then let me tell you about powerlessness. As someone who's spent my entire career studying shame and fear, powerlessness is the most dangerous state that we can ever experience. It leads to violence, isolation, shame, self-harm. Power is just the ability to accept, to, to affect change. For somehow we have come to the belief, not just in this country, because I work all over the world, that power is finite. That if I share some with Olivia and Genia, that's two pieces of a pie of eight. 
And now I only have six-eighths of that pie left. It's a zero-sum game. But that is not power. That is power over. And power over is finite, for sure. And I think what we're witnessing across the world today is power over's last stand. We are picturing really fearful, desperate people saying, I am afraid to move from a world of power over to power with and power to, to shared power, a belief in power that's infinite, a belief that power doesn't run out. It's not zero sum. There is no evidence anywhere that power over is effective because when we lead and when we act, and even when we parent from a position of power over, we by definition disempower people who have great experiences, ideas, and stories to bring to the table. Don't you love that? This concept of power says we can each be a part of change because we can each, that's what the definition of power is, being, you know, being able to drive change. So we're going to shift that paradigm as well. Part of this bigger than me moment is helping to, helping leaders to shift the paradigm without taking away anything from you. You're just enabling those around you. You're empowering those around you. Every person in your organization, you're basically empowering each person to be an instrument for change. That's what this bigger than me moment, this bigger than me movement is moving us toward. It's helping us to acknowledge those bigger than me moments. They're beautiful. It's a beautiful opportunity to pause, shift, and move in a different direction. That's what you're gonna get by participating in these bigger than me moments. You're gonna get an opportunity to truly change things. So when we think about change, in order for us to change, another cr critical part of what we said we were doing with this first initiative was around systems change. And we're going to continue to have these conversations because we're going to approach systems change in a different way. But first, we have to acknowledge that there are systems. And so I asked our panelists about systems change and why it's so important for us to think about this movement, this Bigger Than Me success series, achieving racial equity and inclusion in business, education, health and wealth. Why is it so important for us to think about this from a systems perspective? And here's what they had to say. We do in the future. Michael Sure. Can I thank you um, for the invitation to be a part of this this great panel? I'm learning a whole lot. I appreciate everybody on, on it. Um, I guess I, I would start, Tracy, in answering that. Right? Is that um, they talk about what the saying is that 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 past uh, the, the past is prologue, right? And and I guess I you know, but then I, I would go on and say that the, sometimes the past isn't even the past, right? And so we talk about the, the history and the structures that have been in place whether it be you know, from slavery to Jim Crow to, um, to redlining to um, exclusion from certain, um, certain job categories. Um, you know, the, um, the, those things are still happening, right? Um, and you know, so we, let's be honest with me, uh, um, somebody else, uh, I think it was Michelle was talking right about, you know, not, not having access to, to certain opportunities or not, not, um, you know, the, 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 or, um, I think it was Bill, you were talking about the, the trend line, right, for, for wealth, right, is, is going down. So we see in the 0809 economic crash, right, um, again, Blacks had, had lower, significantly lower wealth to start with, but they ended up the, out, out of the um, last recession, even having lower wealth, while white families had higher wealth coming out of, out of the last recession, right? Um, and so, so the fact that, that we still, you know, we still don't graduate 
African Americans from high school at the same rate we graduate white. We don't, they don't get into college at the same rate. We don't graduate college at the same rate. Um, you know, the fact that we that um, that um, you know, so so I guess you know maybe so one takeaway right is that um, the past isn't the past. The past is now, right? Um, and so I think the other thing to keep in mind right is that what wealth is built over generations. Yes, there's there's the odd, you know, somebody you know invents some new technology and they make it rich in their lifetime. But for for the most for most people, wealth is built over a lifetime. And we did not have right, so talking about Seattle, right? And this is the, the talk that you you, you referenced, uh, Casey. Um, we did not have fair housing laws in Seattle until after King was assassinated. In the it, twice in the early to mid 60s, Seattle voters voted against fair housing. So if you have, so here in Seattle then, right, if, if most, most families build well, right, by, through home ownership, if, you know, if the first generation that could buy houses anywhere they wanted to in the city, assuming they could get a loan, and that's a whole nother story that we can, we can but assuming they could get a loan and assuming they could build enough, add enough income and wealth, which they didn't, to, to put down payments on houses, you know, the, that was just 50 years ago, right? So we're, we're really just now, in reality, this is the, the generation that, you know, sort of in the, say, 25 to 50 old, this is the first generation of African Americans that, that could really, in, in some substantial ways, build wealth. We're about to see the largest transfer of intergenerational wealth in the history of humankind happening as, as baby boomers retire and pass it on to their kids. But those are white baby boomers that are passing it on, not black baby boomers. And because black were not able to accumulate wealth at that time, so don't have it to pass along, so then you don't have that, 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 that nest egg in which you could start a business with or that you could put, put a down payment on a house or a boat or whatever it is that you want. Um, become angel investors, become equity investors, right? So it's um, it's it's a continuation, um, and there, and there are ongoing structural issues that that are preventing blacks from building wealth still. We cannot hear you, uh, Tracy. Thank you. Is that better? Yes. Awesome. Bill, I'm going to come to you now. Back to you. You sent me an So we have a, um, a closing video that talks about the call to action. Nathan, how long is that one? Is that the 19 minutes? Okay, so why don't you go ahead and finish, uh, finish playing the video that you were showing just now, and we will edit this part out, hopefully. <laughs> article from the New York Times and it was called um, how corporation how corporate America has failed black America and it had a lot of historical references as well it talked about the systems and you went on to send me this beautiful message that was quite informative actually about historically we really haven't made a lot of progress tell us about that tell us about this how that relates to systemic change okay well you know, um, that was a great article. It, it is a great article. And I'd suggest um, if, there's, if there's any way that you can somehow um, get that information to uh, the folks that are on this 
uh, this session tonight. That would it would be very helpful. It's very informative. It's it's disappointing and it and it's hurtful to read it, but it, the truth is the truth. Okay, so uh, where are we with uh, that? Was uh, that article really focused in on how corporate America has really been tasked for <laughs> decades? Okay, this is not something recent. It's decades. So um, yeah, today we talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, but it was fundamentally back years and years ago, even prior to the um, civil rights era of the 1960s, they were, there was a power struggle going on inside uh, the employment sector at that time. With the, uh, with the um, civil rights era back in the 1960s, we had, coming out of that, we had what was called affirmative action and equal opportunity. And those were all laws that were put on the books to get employers to comply with the law. And I would submit to you, and I think anybody that's been around for any time understands that uh, compliance with the law will not move you forward. It just simply is a, it's, it's a process in place to keep you out of jail if, if you violate the law. And quite frankly, from everything that I've seen, companies have figured out how to very, very cleverly um, skirt around the, uh, the comp compliance issues. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to have a real corporate strategy uh, that really does everything that we're talking about. How do we create a barrier-free zone? How do we create a culture of inclusion? How do we have policies in place, not like harassment training that says if you harass somebody, you get in trouble, but how do you have policies and procedures in place that really um, create an open environment where everybody's what, what you bring to the table is valued. And I don't mean just your talents and your skills, because sometimes your talents and skills, those are things that are on your resume. But who you are is of value. And if it's not of value, then you never will really be able to leverage your skills to accomplish uh, the growth and development that you hope to. So, you know, as we're looking at this, um, uh, where we are today, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because the progress, I mean, many of us would say, well, no, how... If we look around, we can see glimpses of um, success. I mean, many of us on this call, many of the people in the Black MBA Association have prospered, but that's just a microcosm of our total society. My wife is an educator and she has uh, been a principal and, an, and a teacher in mainly urban dis school districts. What I see today is a failure rate that approaches almost 50% of students of colors, primarily black boys and brown boys, that don't graduate from uh, the school system in, in a timely manner. Many of them drop out before they even get to the 11th grade. So, um, so we've got problems that are, that are not getting better, they're getting worse, and, and actually in every dimension. So there's, um, again, the article really points out how, how the effort was started off back uh, in, in, I would say from the uh, 60s, because there was a hiring boom. I was a part of that. Um, many corporations focused in on and partnered with organizations like the National Black MBA Association, trying to create pipelines for talent. The unfortunate thing, and I, I've seen this and I've seen it play out, particularly when I worked in New York City, many times people of color came in with heavy, heavy credentials, oftentimes greater, greater credentials than your Caucasian counterparts, yet and still the growth rate was stagnant. I mean, people came in highly, and so there was a lot of frustration, there still is, and people, you know, we've heard women talk about the glass ceiling. Well, black folks have, 
face the, a, a brick wall for a lot, oftentimes they'd come in, they get hired and basically you, you, uh, you level out at a, at a point in your career that's much, much sooner than, than your white colleagues. So the article covers that in detail. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but it's, um, it's a scathing indictment on America. Corporate America has not really owned up to, to its promise. And, um, and so I'll leave it at that. I know Bruce has probably got more than he can add to that. So hopefully, hopefully that helps, helps clear. So Tracy, you know, yes, Tracy, if I could just, I guess, um, follow up on that and go back to the issue of justice for a moment. Because I, I, uh, when you mentioned and brought up justice, and as you said, it's been brought up by several people during this conversation. You know, I think of one piece of justice, which is the ideal, which is truly right and wrong which is, you know, uh, I think very much culturally where many of us are, you know, in, in terms of it really, what justice is, is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. But then when you think about justice system, and, and it, you know, I'm, I'm struck by sort of the question, and we've all mentioned uh, uh, George Floyd earlier in this conversation. How many of us, have, and I'm talking about this in the, in the context of the justice system, how many of us actually think his killer is going to be convicted of murder? I don't. And that's a, that is a function, not of me, because I'm generally an optimistic person. That's a function of our justice system, which doesn't work. There is not equal justice under law. Uh, the, we, we have a, a, a current occupant of the White House who is truly above the law by any definition any of us can, 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 uh, can say. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, the, the distance between the ideal of justice and the reality of justice is so far at this point that it is indistinguishable. And I think that is a measure, and, 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 you know, to be somewhat pessimistic, if you will, that is a measure of how far we have to go, of how much work really needs to be done, because the system really is rough. Right. And it's right in many levels. But again, I gave you the example I did for a reason. Uh, it, it, people don't, you know, wrong is done and people don't, there is no accountability. So that is something, yes, and that is part of what we're going to change as a part of this initiative. As it relates to corporate America, it's a system that's a lot more closed than the justice system. I intentionally did not say achieving racial equity and inclusion in, ju in the justice system. I've done a lot of work around systems analysis. That is a very complex system with a level of municipalities from federal and state and local. And we can't necessarily change that system and or we as a community can't necessarily hold accountable the level that we can for corporate America. These are our partners. These are the people that know and supposedly love us. Part of our role and part of this work is to help them to see the truth, hold them accountable for doing the right thing, operationalize actual, actually operationalize systemic changes, things that we know can actually make a difference. So just so that people know as a part of this conversation, we're starting this particular conversation as a case for change. It will be required reading for those who want to continue to be, say that they're partners, right, who are really trying to do the right thing. Right, required for us to really focus on how do we move this forward. The next conversation we have should not be 81% black. We should not be talking to ourselves. We all agree. I had a whole list of poll questions. I was like, we don't even need to do poll questions because we're all talking to ourselves. Right, we don't need to have that conversation. We will continue to bring in our companies, our corporations, 
to follow up. They want to do the right thing. I believe that more than anything. So we're going to help them get to a better place. I'm super excited about that. The, uh, we're still in the question around, again, this, this is a very strategic initiative focused on adaptive leadership. I'm intentionally focused on systemic change. Rex, part of the reason I had you on board, because you're just, you, you all are so fascinating. Each of you have a whole amazing story to tell. When you and I talked, you talked about business inequities, systemic changes. You, you had a lot to share. Tell us a little bit, help people to understand the systemic change that exists in your space. Rex Brown. You can elevate Rex. I think you were muted. There you go. You, Tell us about what you do, your organization, why are you even needed? Yes, so um, that is a, a great question. And um, I would say that systems uh, of inequity flourish because they convince people that they are powerless to stop them. That's mm. it. Hold on. No, no, no. You got to say that again. You got to say that again. Pause, pause. Una momento. Can't do it. <laughs> That's foundational. Systems of inequity exist because people believe they are powerless to change them. Right. And so part of my success in um, the state of Washington, which we, we had talked about before, was beginning from a different operational point of view to examine and assess the system. So I came in through a large department, uh, took a look at the system, how it worked, listened to what people were saying, was curious about um, what is it, why do people keep telling me that I can't change this thing because of I-200? And then I started asking questions like, oh, have you read it? And I constantly get, no, I haven't. Or um, I know what it says, or there was a memo. Um, after uh, actually digging through the layers of stories and emails about this thing I actually got to some truth, I actually read the statute myself as uh, a person with a law degree. I think that's what I was supposed to do. So I read it and uh, then made a determination that it, what I was hearing was a lot of mythology about what really couldn't be done because people thought they had less power than they actually had. And one way that um, I've been able to get I think such a large degree of engagement uh, from so many different uh, action teams or, uh, is I approached it from a different point of view. Um, relationships create collaborations and collaborations create systems. So I needed a new kind of system because as an individual, there's no way. It's me against an entire system. I can't control the entire system. I need to create another system. But this system, as Michael Verschel and Bruce pointed out and Bill, is intergenerational. Now there's a limitation to what I can do with that system. However, there are some tactical points of view and strategic points of view to attack the system and then dismantle it. And so it was a very complex process of putting into place communities of practice that actually gauged what their actual actions were as opposed to their intentions, right? And it, you know, one of the things that I never underestimate, somebody comes up to talk to me, I talk to them, right? Well, it's probably a product of, uh, you know, growing up in the, in the family that I did with a bunch of ministers, but, um, you know, somebody comes up to you and they wanna to talk to you, you really don't know the amount 
of impact you can have in that person's life and that conversation. It's not for me to control what happens after the conversation, but just show up in the conversation. And so those relationships that I managed to forge with people gave me true allies who wanted to help, right? And I didn't hide the information. I shared it collaborative. We created a lot of teams for it. Uh, we uh, created teams to actually tackle and structure uh, of the law itself, as well as things like inclusion plans, best practices, uh, that sort of thing. So that is work that I've done, not because I came in, you know, the governor appointed me and suddenly I had these powers. I looked at it as a system that I could influence, right? I had the power to influence the system, not change it because, you know, it's, it's a big system, but I could influence it. And then people would create change through movement. And what we have now is a unique time that people are fired up to have a change. And the movement is there for the taking. So um, sometimes you just have to bring the expertise to it. Um, uh, but really that's a small part of it. Uh, and I think you know, you've adequately and accurately uh, and appropriately diagnosed that we have what we need, let's get the plan in place. How are we going to tackle this? But I think engagement is a, a key component of that. Uh, you know, and, and I would like to say, you know, uh, I uh, lucky that we had the, uh, to um, to say that the 2019 Washington State Disparity Study uh, was released on Juneteenth <laughs> last year, and um, uh, we used that document uh, to obtain uh, legislative funding for the first time. And we have systems that are inside the state, very small ones like OMWBE where I work uh, now is one of only a few systems that look at uh, really uh, attempts at equity throughout this entire state of Washington. Washington state has used uh, RCW uh, 496400 as a means to really eliminate a lot of the activities uh, that are permissible even uh, in terms of gaining equity and contracting. So we're on a path to contract equity. So I've stood up that unit inside the Office of Minority Women's Business Enterprises. Uh, that was one of my key charges to get the disparity study done when I was in Department of Enterprise Services for the Governor's Subcabinet and then uh, stand up this unit. Wow. Is that is that awesome? <laughs> Do you see the amazing individuals that we have as a part of this? The next uh, video we're going to show relates to justice, but first I wanted to share a couple of things that Rex said, which are critical to this movement. As an individual, he said that, you know, systems of inequity exist because we believe we're powerless to change them. He says, as an individual, we can't change the system, but we can influence change and we can build relationships and partnerships. And as individuals collectively, we can change the system because we are the system. That's what the bigger than me, bigger bigger than me success series to achieve racial equity and inclusion is about. It's about bringing us together, uniting to drive change. We can drive change. You talked about the tactical and strategic initiatives, elements. We have all of it. We have the experts. All we need is you. All we need is you. So we're going to play a video as we close this out. Um, the last few minutes of the show, um, you are invited. Our next event is on August 8th. It's 8-8. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure additional details are available. But what I thought was really most interesting about 
this session is as we had these various conversations, this concept of justice just kept coming up, this idea of justice. And, and we asked the leaders about justice. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a listen to what Bill had to say in just a part of this clip. Were you directing that question to anybody in particular? Gen generically to my people. I'll, I've spoken to each of you guys individually. You've all mentioned the word justice. I don't have okay. a question on it per se. But right. Why does that keep coming up? Why is that such an important theme for this conversation? Well, you know, bottom line, justice is at the root of the, the entire discussions. Without justice, what do you have? Um, you know, one thing I would like to say that, and I know we're having a conversation on what it takes to win and everything, but quite frankly, uh, and from my opinion, we are in a triage condition. This is not a time for us to be talking about elective surgery and what have you. We, we got to stop the bleeding. And it's and it touches every sector and every fabric of our societies, the corporate sector, the educational sector, um, you know, uh, housing sector, healthcare. Every sector right now is under siege, and there is no justice. I mean, if we just look at the numbers. Now, I know the uh, last person speaking mentioned wealth, and once we, um, uh, if in fact we were ever able to get. Um, wealth for all people at, on parity. Well, I hate to say it, but quite frankly, the trend line doesn't look good. Now, Bruce Thompson is a finance guy. He does analytics. And I think Bruce could give you a very, very um, a solid um, understanding of how this is not working. If you look at wealth, uh, the wealth of African Americans and people of color, um, uh, particularly uh, Hispanic Latino, you will find that the trend line for wealth is going down it's not it's not leveling off it hasn't gone up it's going down it's getting worse the disparity in every dimension that we can talk about is getting worse our so don't you love that <laughs> i know you couldn't play the whole thing and again on uh my website it's all bigger than me.com it's all bigger than me.com we're going to be adding uh it's, it's july 26 by august 1st we'll have the full uh, breadth of all these videos available. So thank you very much. This is Tracy Harrell and it's bigger than me, but together it's not bigger than us.